Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz pianist Kenny Werner. He was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Oceanside, Long Island, and started playing and performing at a very young age. It was 11 years old that he first recorded on TV, and he never stopped after that. He talked about his latest 2018 CD called The Space, and it's a great story about creative fortitude. He's been a world-class pianist and composer for over 40 years with a prolific output of compositions, recordings, and publications giving good energy to audiences around the world and the universe. He had plenty to say, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So, Kenny, thank you for taking a minute out. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you. And I want to start off, I've had a great time listening to the space, and I want to know from you, what did, what did you want to convey to the audience with this album? <laughs> it's funny, language is a funny thing. I wanted to get out of the way and let it convey whatever that is. You know, there's, there's two general flows of creativity that people believe in. Some people are very scientific, and they believe in control and and crafting and, you know, crafting a message and then expressing that message. Then there's uh, some more people who are a little more mystical and believe that the best outcomes come when they let go, meaning even the outcomes for other people. So if you take that as an analogy to this, I let go so that, the benefit for the people listening would be from a, I don't know, a more, a place where they, where they get what they need rather than be deciding what, what music is. Does that make any sense? Makes total sense. Yeah. I never quite yeah. said it that way. So what I wanted to do is be the, I, I wasn't the conveyor, I was the vehicle for whoever and whatever the conveyor is. And I wanted yeah. to get out of the way so people could get that, the result of whatever that wanted to be. I guess I could say it that way. So how does this differ from what you've done before? You've been at it for 40-plus years. You've released a lot of albums. How do you view each successive album? Is it its own entity, or is there kind of a continuing dialogue? No, well, they're their own entity. I mean, I have obviously a through line with my trio. We've done, we've been, we were together. I mean, we're kind of together. We don't really play much now because I've just thought we all need to do other things. But, uh we, it's like 20 years, and I don't know how many records, six, seven records. And, no, it's only the music that gets prepared at that time, and we think it's ready to, to cook, you know, or it's ready to take out of the oven when it's time to do a record. But every record, it's been my, I think I've always been into this mystical idea of get out of the way unless they, you know, what, is, what do you call higher power, universal consciousness. Some people like the word God. Personally, that word's been kind of ruined for me by use in other in nefarious uh in the name of the fairy you know of nefarious activities but you know this force that we all know that we're part of um but when you make a record you know different records i had different uh different goals and and sometimes the more specific of a goal i had the better the record like i did one which almost no one heard because in japan and the company folded and it was only recent japan but it's kind of a People know about it, and it's you know kind of got that that reputation. It's called paintings, and in that record, I decided that it's the best record I ever did. I think from a composer's point of view, because I studied certain painters, and I let what I saw from those paintings guide the compositions. So in other records, I would just be trying to create. A, I would be trying to create a certain idea. There was another one called Lawn Chair Society that the one and only record I did for Blue Note. 
And in my mind, it was at that time in the early 2000s where much of the world was suffering and America was like in a country club atmosphere. And uh, so I, I, uh, I wanted to show the almost cartoonish idea. So there are times as a composer, I have a point of view. But in, in all my records, I've tried to let this cosmic element come through. And what happens is you also have this nagging thing about, you know, the, the, the level of the music. How great is the music? And how great will everybody agree is the music? And I have to admit, that's ego. And that gets in the way of this cosmic consciousness. On this record, I totally released the need to make a great record and allowed the cosmic consciousness, or what I call the space. <laughs> That's why I sure. named it the space. In my book, there's a chapter on the space. And it is really that, that vast, limitless territory beyond the conscious mind. And this is the first record that I felt like this is not about my playing. This is about the space and what wants to come from there. And that's why I thought the title was momentous for me. Because the first time I borrowed anything from Effortless Mastery in my record, my, my, my book, and said, this is it. This is not just what I write about or teach. This is my music right here. So, I mean, I've always attempted to it, but I'd say in every record, in some way or another, ego got in the way. The need for people to think it's an amazing record. Actually, yeah. the way of this cosmic idea of let it be what it's going to be. Yeah, so I like that. Long-winded answer, but hopefully it was clear enough. It is. It's totally clear. The one thing that's interesting about your life, and I can I can tap into it a little bit from a personal standpoint. My father was born in Brooklyn, and he was raised in Long Island. I, you know, he he joined the Air Force to see the world, and God stuck in Kansas City and fell in love, and here I am. So, what I want to ask is, is this. What was it about your childhood that lent you to not only get into music but to fall in love with jazz? What got me into music was it seemed, from the time I started to play it that I, and I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I had an, a really great talent for it. So it just was easier to do than everything else. I mean, being totally honest. And also, yeah. you know, it seemed to be something I might have done before. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, people's reaction to it, uh, you know, it's it's just there, uh, again, there are ego reasons that you want to play. People love you when you play. And I didn't really catch the the bug for jazz until I went to college. Um, I was listening to some, play, probably, with a few exceptions, I was listening to the same stuff any kid was listening to in those days on AM radio, pop music or some classical music. My father had a lot of Fats Waller records, so my early playing really is a, uh, is influenced by Fats Waller because I didn't know there was another way to play. So as a kid, I played stride piano. In fact, I had an actor and I was on TV playing stride piano at, like at, as an 11-year-old. So I fell into it because there was so much more access for me than anything else that I would have to work at like, anybody, like anyone else would have to work at, you know. I started to dabble in jazz in high school and, and, and then in college, I was a concert piano major, but I was living with a, a jazz freak, a Charlie Parker-type saxophone player. So I started to hear all the music, and I thought it was great. But this idea of consciousness I'm talking about, the record that moved me in that direction was a Miles Davis record called In a Silent Way. And when I heard that record, I found myself go into a cosmic state. And I said, that's what I want. This is what i got to do. 
it, it never was just about the music. It was about what does it do to me and what do I become and what what moves me towards the light and what moves me away from the light. And the music of the 70s and late 60s and train and, you know, that amazing period was a very mystical period. Most of the titles of the records were, you know, a philosophical or spiritual concepts. Really, it really, the, the fact that it was jazz was secondary. Then in the 80s, jazz turned into its sort of quasi-museum period, which happens with everything. It happens with religion, and everything gets to be about this is what the music is about. And had I come along in the 80s, I wouldn't have had the slightest interest. What interested me about jazz when I came into it in the 70s is that it was a medium for consciousness. And I've always been, you know, back then, I was consuming things that created instant consciousness. And then later on, I actually spent a good part of my life pursuing practices that that create consciousness, you know. And so that music did it to me. I put that on and I was gone for the entire length of the record. So, and after that, I went to Berkeley, which then just the influence of the group. There were, everybody, all my friends were really great jazz players, and by the time I left Berkeley, I was a jazz player. I don't recall exactly choosing it. It's just that you play with who you play with, and then you get a phone call, and they got a gig, and that's what it is. I, you know, my head was not screwed on right when you talk about high school, college, and, you know, you know what they say about the 70s. I'm sure you've heard it. If you remember them, you weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't tell you how I got to where I got to, but if I had my head on straight, I would have done what my first love would have been, which was scoring, would have been, and still could be, you never know, scoring movies. I actually think my music sounds like I'm scoring movies very often because I let that in. Instead of thinking there's a jazz model and I have to be it, you know, growing in the music means growing to know more and more personally and admitting out loud who you really are and what you're not. So as I got older, I said, wait a minute, these things that I'm ashamed, for example, living in Long Island, like you said, if, if, in, in college, if someone asked me, uh, where are you from? I would have said New York. I would yeah. have said Long Island. Sure. <laughs> you know, so, so as you get older, you say, let me take every little imperfection and thing I'm embarrassed by and embrace it. And what happens is your music changes in, in a way that's much more authentic to you. And that's what my thing has been a, a discovery process of all this time. So let me ask you this. Over your career, you played with a lot of luminaries, a lot of big names like Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, I mean, Toots Thielmans, all across the board. What did these masters teach you about the jazz craft that stuck with you for all these decades? With Mel Lewis and Archie Shepard, in that fact, too, I noticed that they effortlessly made the music they made. If you watch, when I played with Mel Lewis, it was interesting perspective because the whole band's facing the audience, but the piano player is facing the back of the stage, and that's Mel. So I'm sitting there looking at Mel, and he's sitting there looking like Buddha. And he could play anything, but the expression on his face or the his body never changed. So I learned great ease and mastery from those guys. And from Tiff Fieldman, I learned a love of music that I don't know if I even had ever had myself. I never met anybody that's just loved music as much as he did and wore that love on his sleeve. So, you know, different things from different people. With Archie Shep, I learned how you can walk out on stage, be completely non-concerned with what's going on around you, put the horn in your mouth, and let it happen. You know, I mean, he, there could be a lot of turmoil around him, and he was completely, it's not that he either was unaware of it or he didn't care about it. Sort of a quality like Thelonious Monk, you know. 
And it was great to be around that and see that you can be in your own lane and you don't have to worry what's going on in the other lanes around you. So those are some of the things. Dad Jones, I just flat out learned what genius writing is about. And, and it definitely, I've written, I have, have two uh, jazz orchestra records out. A lot of people don't know, but with the Brussels Jazz Orchestra. And every once in a while, I'll go back to a tune that's just got that juice. And I know it's from being influenced by playing Dad Jones charts for like for 10 years. So you've won so many awards over your career. You know, you've got a Guggenheim Fellowship. You've, your albums have won awards. My question is this. I don't want to know what your favorite award is, but what award did you get in your career that totally surprised you? Well, I don't know I got that many awards. Um, I haven't won a Grammy. I, was, you know, I guess the fact that I was nominated for a song I wrote as a composer, not even a jazz player, and I think it was 2001 or 2002, that was a complete surprise. Uh, the Guggenheim was very, very satisfying because it affirmed me as a composer and it really helped me to uh, to take myself more seriously as a composer. So I, I have to say that was a major one. So up to this point in your career, after you know, four-plus decades, are you happy with where you're at? I am now. I've gone through a lot of periods where uh, I wasn't. You know, a lot of people won't admit that, but, I, you know, I... I thought with the kind of music I'm making, I should have more access to the audiences I want uh, at at the prices I want. But that it wasn't really prices so much as access. The more access you get, the more you can exercise your creativity. And in much of that period, I was stunted by things I would have created, but it wasn't that easy access. And you know, the next thing I think about, we're doing it. No, there's a lot to negotiate to get it done. Uh, I mean, to get it available, it, it gets the opportunity. So I wasn't happy for a lot of it. I moved into a phase now, based on I've kind of come around after all these years to embracing what I created not as a player but as an author. You know, for years it was always about the next gig, the next gig, and and I was I had people send me such thousands of people send me such messages of gratitude for what my book, Effortless Mastery, had done for them. And I just kind of ignored it, moved on, because all I cared about was my next gig. And then one day, about five, six years ago, my wife and I, it's a long story, but the, uh, the, the short story is that my wife and I are talking, and she said, why don't you embrace that, what you've created there? It's, it's unlike what any other musician has created, you know? And I said, well, maybe it's time to do that. I put it out to Berkeley that I'm ready to uh, create new courses based on ethical mastery, and I got right back from them that they'd be honored to have me do that. And as a result, I'm now the artistic director of the Ethical Mastery Institute at Berkeley. And I am absolutely developing a new paradigm for how people can lift the veil for themselves and find the greatness in themselves and therefore in their own playing. And I have to say, the flashes people get of that are a bigger kick to me now than actually playing a concert. So I am very satisfied where I am right now. I don't think it's about playing anymore. It's about helping others to find... I've had so many sparkling moments of playing. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter who I played with, and that stuff's interesting, but the inner light would be just blazing. And, uh, you know, there are people that have never met that inner light or have had one flash in their whole lifetime. And my... The courses I'm working on are designed to, to to draw that greatness out that everybody possesses. And I have to say, that's I'm very satisfied with the uh, 
access I have to create there. For example, I'm writing more words than music. I have to force myself to write music. I, I just did a beautiful quartet with uh, Esperanza Spaulding and uh, Terry Lynn Carrington and Dave Liebman. It'll be an LP. Actually, uh, James Genus plays on the record. It'll be an LP. I think it's going to be out next year with Nouvelle. And uh, it came out really nice, but it was the first time I had to write new music in a while, and I really had to force myself. But I could walk into uh, my studio right now and write a chapter, a new chapter of my book. I am finally writing a, a follow-up to Effortless Mastery, and, and it's called Becoming the Instrument. And that's what I'm all about, and helping other people to do that is very exciting to me. So you've dedicated your life to the world of jazz. Tell me, why Why do you love jazz? jazz I love jazz because of what you were able to do under the... The, the quality, all right, a few things I love about jazz. You make a mistake, and if you make a mistake with self-affirmation, it can become a new music. There's no other music that, there's no other music that evolves so much in such a short amount of time. You know, classical music evolved over centuries. Folk music, rock music, blues doesn't evolve. You either play it or you're not playing it. Jazz can be reshaped over and over. Exactly the thing the guys in the 80s didn't like is exactly what I liked, is that you could use jazz to reshape your sound and your message over and over again. And what happened is that when some, you know, ethnic guys laid claim to jazz, and, and I, I agree with that too. They they pointed out stuff that got, was getting lost, and why should it happen to their music and not classical music? Why should it happen to their music and not Brazilian music? And I get it. That's why people started to say, I play jazz and improvised music. Because if somebody wants to lay claim to a too clear an identity of jazzes, then you have to play that music. You can't play yourself. The only way you can play jazz is to imitate what they told you jazz is. And that's never been my bag. I've never been interested in recreating I'm interested in that, that, again, that cosmic moment of creating, and I don't care what you call it. For me, I'm not really wedded to the word jazz, but the history of jazz is the kind of innovation that I would have, it just fit me best in terms of the idea of being able to evolve any kind of idea at any time. I don't think you can really call, a, call out another music that uh, allows that kind of a big tent, I guess. So that's what I love about it the most. Everyone has a version of who you are, a perception of who they think you are, your family, your friends, and your fans, but you know you. Who do you think you are? I think I'm a person who uh, is trying to evolve, for one, selfish reasons, because I've always suffered with one kind of... The pain of self-obsession has is, is various levels of pain for different people. For me, it's always caused a lot of pain. And I've been looking for freedom. And I think I'm a student of how to attain freedom in mind, body, heart, and soul. That's who I am. I'm a seeker of that. More than anything, give me that and I'll give you back the music. Beautiful. And the only, I love that. The only, the only reason the music is important at all is if it facilitates this freedom I've been seek, seeking all my life. If I can tell yeah, you, no, that, no, I recently no, had no, an yeah, epiphany. Uh, never quite satisfied because I was under the impression that more should have happened in my career based on how I played and how I composed. And so I thought a lifetime, it didn't happen as much as I thought it should have happened. And then recently, and I believe in reincarnation too, so the purpose of this lifetime was to clear a lot of scars from some other lifetime and really find what everybody 
actually has available to them, which is a supreme self that resides within them. And the more they identify with that, the more those things get burned up as karma. And that's my purpose. And if that's the case, here I am in ripe old age. I'm in the mid and moving faster in the 60s. I'm getting happier and happier. So therefore, I use this lifetime well. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. I love it. No, that's a beautiful epiphany. Yeah. And Kenny, thank you for being so illuminating and opening up about your career and your new album. Good luck on it. And thank you for all the music. Sure, and thank you for asking good questions. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Kenny for his cool, his music, and all of those stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.